Daniel chapter 11. You know, why, why do we do what we do? You know, for those that have got up and come here this morning, why? You know, why do we read the Bible? Why do we do this bizarre thing, which is praying? Well, the only reason to do it is because there is a God. There is a God that hears our prayers. There is a God that has given us his word to teach us rights and wrong, to show us his will, and to lead us in our journey through life. There is no other reason. If this is all fabrication, if this is all made-up stuff, then really this is no more than just a social club. And of course, Paul makes that point in 1 Corinthians 15. He talks about the resurrection. He says it's the basis of what we believe. He said, if there is no resurrection, he said, we're of all men most miserable. You know, we either believe this to be true, or we are all just wasting our time. But we do believe it to be true. Why do we believe it to be true? Well, there's a number of ways we could answer that. We could speak about our personal testimony. We could speak about the way that God has changed our lives. And that's certainly very valid. You know, God has given us a conscience that tells us right from wrong. We instinctively know what is right. We instinctively know what is wrong. Uh, If you want proof of that, just look at a child. I see that regularly during the week when a child of mine, one or the other, will do something that they know is not right. And you know that they know it's not right because the first thing they do is look at you to see how you're going to react and how you're going to respond. And we're the same as as that in our, our lives as adults. We understand that there are things that are right, there are things that are wrong. We don't need other people to tell us. You know, we have got this built-in sense of morality, this knowledge that can't come about through random processes, through evolution, through time and chance. And the Bible says, God himself says, that God has given us this conscience, that God bears witness. And then, of course, we come to the Bible itself. And there are, of course, many people who would dismiss the Bible and say, oh, well, I don't believe it's true. And I would challenge them and say, well, have you ever read it? And I've had this conversation with a number of people over the years. They said, oh, I don't believe the Bible. Well, why not? What is it you don't believe about the Bible? You know, I appreciate there are things in the Bible that maybe seem strange to our natural minds, miracles that have taken place that we have recorded. And people say, well, those things don't happen today. Well, they're recorded in Scripture by people who claim to be eyewitnesses of those events. We're going to look this morning at one of the most remarkable chapters in the Bible. And it is very detailed, so there's a lot on the screen. Hopefully you'll be able to follow it as we go through it. I've subtitled it, The Not-So-Silent, Silent Years. And I'll explain what I mean by that. You can see there, hopefully, a, a timeline of the Bible itself, going all the way back from Genesis. This is roughly when the books are kind of recorded. So the, the book of Genesis penned by Moses, really as a collation of the things that Adam had written and then subsequently others through other generations. Moses compiles it all together and puts it in the book of Genesis, which covers a huge span of history. Genesis covers from 4000 BC for the creation of the world, according to the Bible, up to the time of the flood, up to the time of Abraham, roughly 2000 uh, or so BC. Uh, and then obviously we get to the time of the Exodus and we go on through uh, Joshua, Judges and so on. This period of, of course, Ruth. And then various other books of the Bible written. Obviously Chronicles and Kings cover a large portion of the Old Testament in terms of the history. And then we're in this period now looking at Daniel uh, and so on. And then obviously you've got the, what they refer to as the minor prophets. Um, so 
That's the, the Old Testament. Uh, again, going from Genesis all the way through to the book of Malachi, which closes out the Old Testament. Now, if we look at the New Testament, so the New Testament period, uh, again, just a short period of time in comparison. It goes obviously from Matthew through to the book of Revelation uh, and just covers this period of uh, approximately uh, 72 years from 2 BC when Jesus was born. I know that kind of rattles our brains a bit because we think zero would be when, but it's not. Actually, 2 BC is as, as, as sure as we can be the date that Jesus was born, uh, up to AD 70 when the temple was destroyed. And really that brings that New Testament era to a close. So that's the time we have. Now, you'll notice that there is a section in the middle here um, that there's 400 years of history of which or in which there are no books that are written during that period of time. And it leads commentators to refer to it often as the silent years. But if we zoom in on that whole section, these 400 silent years, as they referred to, are not silent at all. The incredible thing is that these 400 years are actually foretold in advance in Daniel chapter 11. And it's staggering. Anybody that says, oh, I don't believe the Bible, has never looked at this. Because at very least, we know that the book of Daniel was written by around about 270 BC. Okay, And we know that because Daniel was translated from the Hebrew and the Aramaic in which it was originally written into Greek. And it's in a a document referred to as the Septuagint. It's the Old Testament was translated from Hebrew effectively into Greek. That's just a a fact of history. So we know it was written at the latest by that time. Now we're very comfortable because there's so many other evidences to tell us that Daniel was written by Daniel while he was in Babylon at the time. Which means that this document we're looking at this morning was written somewhere between 600 and 500 B.C. And yet the details that we're going to see are staggering. And the critics absolutely hate it, but there is no way they can get around the fact that what Daniel has recorded in this chapter was fulfilled historically in that 400-year period with staggering precision. We're looking uh, historically at this time, roughly about 536 BC. That's when these events that we're looking at now take place. Now, we started in chapter 10 last week. We're going into chapter 11 now, and then obviously chapter 12, Lord willing, next week to close out the book. Now, jumping straight into the text, Daniel chapter 11, verse 1 says, Also I, in the first year of Darius the Mede, even I stood to confirm and strengthen him. Now, the first thing we need to understand because it will confuse you if you don't look at this properly, is who the I is. Now, naturally, because the way we're kind of programmed, you go to a chapter in the Bible, and it's in the book of Daniel, and it says, also I, and you think, well, it must be speaking of Daniel. In the first year of Darius the Mede, even I stood to confirm and strengthen him. So we think he's talking about Daniel. Well, and then it gets very confusing. What we need to realize is that the chapter breaks were not in the original. The chapter breaks were added in about the 12th century. So chapter 11 is just a continuation of chapter 10, and in some senses you'd be better just removing the numbers and just reading it through as a narrative. The whole portion, uh, 10, 11, and 12, are all one block. And if you remember, what we saw last week was that an angel had come to speak to Daniel to answer his prayers. There'd been a spiritual warfare thing going on, and that God had come to give Daniel an answer to his prayers. And it's the angel that is starting to speak to Daniel that he's still speaking. So it's the angel that's speaking. And the angel highlights to Daniel that he actually, Daniel, two years ago, because it's just the first year of Darius the Mede, and we, we know the, the chronology of these things, it would have been two years before the point that we're looking at now. Because the angel is now speaking, we're told in the previous chapter, 
chapter 10, verse 1, that it's the third year of Cyrus. Well, Cyrus and Darius started at the same time. So if it's the first year of Darius, it's got to be two years before this. The angel's saying, two years ago, I stood up uh, to strengthen and confirm Darius. Now, what's really interesting is that this would have been 537. Now, if you've been following who's been going through this, you'll recognize that was the year that King Cyrus has signed a decree to allow the Jews to return to Jerusalem. We've got the steel of Cyrus up in the British Museum as proof of these things, the historicity of it all. And so what we're finding is, if you join the dots together, that this angel had stood to confirm Darius, strengthen him. This again, some sort of spiritual war going on. At the point in time that Babylon was losing a lot of its inhabitants. People were turning. The Jews were returning to their own lands. And maybe Darius would have wanted to hold on to them and keep his workforce and keep his people. But, but for whatever reason, the angel stands to strengthen him at this point. And it could well be directly related to the Jews returning to Babylon. We're not given the details, but certainly it's a, a reasonable conjecture because it would have been at the same time. So that gives us the context. And for whatever reason, the angel wanted Daniel to be aware of that fact. And given the context that this is all looking about Israel and Jerusalem, it would make a lot of sense as to why. What we do see, of course, is that the angel is answering Daniel's prayer in regard to Israel. So it seemed to link in with that uh, idea. Uh, And again, the thing to note here is that God is clearly at work behind kings and kingdoms for his purposes. This angel standing to strengthen Darius, who was over the Babylonian realm. So that's our opening verse of the chapter. That's explained. We should be comfortable with that now. So now what we're going to look at is 135 prophecies in just 34 verses. This is really, as I've said already, it's staggering. Superlatives are not enough to, to really just to do justice. This is really, really incredible. And we're going to go through these, and it's a lot quicker than you think it might be. Um, you'll be pleased to know. But I just want to say up front that God says in Isaiah chapter 46 that there is no other God that can declare the end from the beginning. Only God can do that. And that God can say from ancient times the things that are not yet done. God says, I can tell the future in advance. There is no other book on planet Earth that deals with prophecy. There is no other book that gives prophecy regarding things that are yet future in the way the Bible does, which is literally recording historical events before we get to them. And God says, test me, prove me in this. Well, let's do that. Let's go through and look at these things and we'll see how these things have been fulfilled historically. Now, what we're going to see in the first couple of verses, the, the focus is on the Persian Empire. It's going to go on from that point, and then from verse 3 and 4, we see the Greek Empire under Alexander the Great come into play, and then the division of the Greek Empire into the four areas that took over from Alexander the Great. And the bit that we're most interested in are these two generals, if you were, of Alexander, Seleucus and Ptolemy, who end up looking after the area of Syria and Babylon, and then Egypt, Arabia, and Israel, which those two respectively look after. Now, I say that that's not entirely true because Seleucus doesn't initially get the job. He gets placed in that role shortly after, and I'll explain that in a little while. Just so you're kind of familiar from a geographical perspective. So, Cassandra took the area of um, Macedonia and Greece. That was the area that he took, uh, took charge of. And Alexander had said on his deathbed, you know, when they said, who should we give the empire to? He said, give it to the strong. 
So kind of a non-helpful answer, really. Um, so these were the ones that ended up taking it. Uh, Lysimachus ends up taking the area today that we consider Turkey. Seleucus is the one that ends up, and I'll explain this in a moment, ends up with this huge area of really the whole of the, the Middle East above Israel, so looking from Lebanon all the way around uh, through Iran, through Iraq, or Iraq into Iran, then across into India, and so on. And then Ptolemy takes the area of North Africa, and particularly Egypt, and then the area adjacent to the Red Sea going down. What you will notice is that right in the middle of the Ptolemy and the Seleucid empires, we have a piece of land that you and I know as Israel. And that's why this is important. That's why it's in the Bible, because the Bible is always interested in how God works and deals with Israel. Israel are like God's timepiece. And we've looked at this in many times, many ways before. Uh, we'll uh, go through it more in detail as we go through this morning. So these are the, the kings that we'll see uh, under the Ptolemaic dynasty, uh, starting with Ptolemy I, uh, all the way down, uh, these individuals, and then the Seleucid Empire, again, Seleucid I, all the way down through here. And the one that we're going to be really interested in is this character at the bottom here, Antiochus IV, or Antiochus Epiphanes, uh, a very interesting character historically. We already mentioned him already uh, in our studies, and we'll see again this morning. All of this, all of their history is covered in this chapter, before they were even born, before they even had any children or got married or done anything, before even the Persian Empire had fallen and the Greek Empire had risen. All of this is recorded in advance. It's, it's just breathtaking. Verse 2, the angel says to Daniel, and now will I show thee the truth. Remember, Daniel's prayer had been, what's going to happen to Israel? Well, the angel's now going to show him. Behold, there shall stand up yet three kings in Persia, and the fourth shall be far richer than they all. And by his strength, through his riches, he shall stir up all against the realm of Grecia. Okay, so as Daniel is writing this, Cyrus, again, is the king of Persia. It's presumed that Darius has, by this point, died. He seems to have only been around for a couple of years. And Daniel's told that from this point, there's going to stand up another three kings in Persia, followed by a fourth who's going to be far richer than they all, and this fourth one is going to stir up the realm of Greek. Now, the way to understand that from the, the Hebrew is he's going to awaken the Greek empire. Right? So that's this prophecy. These are just the first elements. I'm not numbering each of the prophecies of this 135 or so, but these are all these prophecies we're going through. A lot of detail already. Even if just this bit were to come true, it would be staggering, but there's far more to come. So we're told we've got four kings. Well, the first two kings we know, following Cyrus, we have Cyrus's son that comes to the throne, Cambyses II, and then Smerdes. Uh, so these are the next two kings that follow after Cyrus. Daniel's, the angel says to Daniel, there's going to be four kings. The first two, historically we know that was the case. And uh, Cyrus's son becomes king, reigning until about 521 BC. Cambyses then discovers that an imposter by the name of Guamata pretending to be his younger brother, Smerdes, who was also called Artaxerxes, claims the kingdom for himself. So this individual kind of does a bit of identity theft, to use modern vernacular, and pretends he's Smerdes. And so he kind of gets somehow to the throne and then announces that he's going to give a three-year exemption of taxes. Now that's going to go down pretty well with the people, isn't it? Anybody comes to power and says, well, you know, you'd have to pay taxes for three years. Everybody loved him. Cambyses realized that he's in a bit of a pickle now, that his own throne is now really in jeopardy, and realizing effectively he's defeated, he ends up committing suicide. 
So this pseudo-Smerdes, not the real Smerdes, but the one pretending to be, then reigns for just a short period, about eight months, before Darius the Great eventually takes control of the Persian Empire. So our third king is Darius the Great. Now, he's really interesting from a biblical perspective. It's in the second year of Darius uh, the Great that a decree is signed allowing the rebuilding of the temple. And that ends that period of the desolations of Jerusalem that we've been looking at over recent weeks. Ezra and Haggai and other books obviously deal with those details. And that leaves us then with our last king. So remember there was going to be three kings. We've just seen the first three kings. And then the fourth king, the angel says to, da- to Daniel, is going to arise, yet future. Which is way on, on the horizon as far as Daniel's concerned. But we're told that this fourth king is going to be far richer than they all. And that through his strength and his riches, he's going to stir up or awaken the Greek empire. Well, historically, we know that Xerxes was also uh, Ahasuerus. Uh, and we actually know him from the book of Esther. So the book of Esther, the king we find there, is this individual. And we're told in the book of Esther that his kingdom spread from India to Ethiopia. That's 127 provinces. So clearly he was greater in his estate than any of the, the kings that have preceded him. According to historians, he fielded a two and a half million man army. Now, even by today's standards, you know, the logistics of managing that are incredible. But not being content with this vast area that he governed and looked after, these 127 provinces, he decides he's going to move against Greece. Now, Greece was not the big powerful nation that it became at this point. It was fairly, um, it was broken up. It was just a collection of these city-states that were starting to uh, get some cohesion and work together. So you see Greece there at the top left of the map, and obviously Persia. Obviously, this whole of this area was under the Persian realm. But but as I say, Persia wasn't happy with that, wanted more. And so, Xerxes decides he's going to go and attack Greece. Now, rather than going up around the top of the Black Sea, which would have been a long and hard journey, he decides he's going to cross here. But the problem, you can see, there's a bit of water between there, and he had to get across that if he's going to get to Greece. So, he comes up with this plan, this wonderful plan, to effectively build a bridge across this point here that's known as the Hellespont. Okay, and this bridge is just a, obviously a, an artist diagram, a picture of it. Just end up putting loads of boats together and connecting them all with the idea that his army was going to be able to march across. And he's getting almost to the point of completing this work. Well, and Herodotus, as the historian tells us, um, that he, he kind of built this and tried to get his army across and so on. Um, but a big storm then destroyed the bridge. So, what would any sensible king do? Well, he takes off his belt. And then he beats the, three, the sea 300 times. Uh, he was so furious that his kind of attempt to conquer Greece had kind of fallen apart before he even got going. So, of course, beating the sea with a belt um, does absolutely nothing. But anyway, um, so he goes home very upset because of this and throws a party. He throws a party for six months and invites everybody. And that is our introduction to the book of Esther. At the end of that time, he decides he wants to get his queen to come and dance in front of everybody. She says no, so then they get rid of her, and then he looks for another queen, and that queen is Esther. So that leads us into the book of Esther. So all of this is kind of covered in certain other aspects and areas of Scripture, but that was the event, that was the situation that led to this. But eventually, he decides he's not going to give up, and he goes back to have another attempt to go and conquer Greece, and so uh, starting this. Now, as a result of this... um, he ends up um, uh, stirring up Greece. And it, it becomes this bitter rivalry 
And that becomes the source of Alexander the Great's obsession with then later conquering the Persian Empire. Alexander yet to come on the, on the historical scale. But this was the seed that was sown. This was the point that really, in a sense, you kind of, you prodded and poked Greece enough that Greece said, right, enough. And that then started Persia's downfall from that particular point in time. So, just as Daniel is told by the angel, Cyrus was succeeded by three other kings, Cambyses, Pseudo-Smerdes, as we said, and Darius the Great. And then came a fourth, Xerxes, who was indeed far richer than his predecessors, and through his military strength, starts a war with Greece that again ultimately leads to the downfall of the Persian Empire. Now, actually, after Xerxes, there are another eight Persian rulers that end up with Darius the Third. Uh, who was eventually the one that was defeated by Alexander the Great. But really, from this point here, from Xerxes onwards, actually, the, the die was cast, if you want to put it that way. And really, this was just then a, uh, the Persian Empire hanging on, but as Greece was rising, getting ready to deal this death blow to the Persian Empire. Then verse 3, we go on, And a mighty king shall stand up that shall rule with great dominion. Well, this mighty king is none other than, of course, Alexander the Great. So prophetically, Daniel is being told by the angel, these four Persian kings will come, and then after, a mighty king is going to stand up, and he was going to be indeed great, and this is, of course, Alexander the Great, who prophetically we actually saw alluded to already back in chapter 7 and 8 of Daniel. But we're told that he will be broken, or die at a young age. I'm just going to go back and read that scripture for you again, uh, a, a mighty king shall stand up that shall rule with a great dominion and do according to his will. And when he shall stand up, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven and not to his posterity, nor according to his dominion, which he ruled for his kingdom shall be plucked up even for others besides. So again, he dies young, about the age of 33, and his kingdom was divided just as the angel said it would be to his four generals in this case, and it wasn't to his own posterity, it wasn't his own offspring, his own children. And nor did it have the stature that it had done under him. Now, I'll try and hopefully make this as easy as I can to try and explain some of these details. So on the left of the, the, the chart, you're going to see up here the Ptolemaic dynasty, and on the right you'll see the Seleucid as we go forward. But first of all, this mighty king, again, Alexander the Great, shall stand up and rule, but then his kingdom's going to be divided between as we've said already, Ptolemy, Cassandra, Lysimachus, and then and and uh, Yeah, you can all mispronounce this later at home if you want to. Um, and again, for the four winds of heaven, and that's again true because we, when you think of the four winds of heaven, it's another like way of saying the the cardinal points of the compass: north, south, east, and west. And actually, geographically, that's exactly where they were. And this is how his empire was broken up. And again, it wasn't any of his own offspring who got to sit on the throne, as it were, of these respective areas. And then we go into verse 5. And we're told, and the king of the south. Okay, so this now is Ptolemy, who took the area of Egypt, as you said earlier, early on, uh, shall be strong and one of his princes, and he shall be strong above him and have dominion. His dominion shall be a great dominion. What does that mean? Well, it's not actually that complicated when you start. It's one of those chapters you can't just read it and understand it. You need to do a little bit of digging historically to understand. But from history... But after Alexander died, Ptolemy took the area with so with Egypt, we said, which included Israel. But geographically, Ptolemy's kingdom was south of Israel, and that's why he gets that title, the King of the South. Okay? So this is why this title is King of the South, King of the North. It's in relation to Israel, always in relation to Israel. And what we're told, 
is that, or what we find historically, that one of his princes, we're told, shall be strong. Well, Ptolemy set up Seleucus over the area of Babylon. So although this uh, Antonius had originally been given this area, because of Ptolemy's help, one of his princes, one of Ptolemy's princes, ends up taking that whole of the area of the, the north, or the, what was the remains of the, the Persian Empire. And we're told that his dominion shall be a great dominion. So speaking of now Seleucus, that his dominion is going to be great. Actually, it was greater than Ptolemy's. You look at a bit on the map, and you see, again, you think you've got north, you've got south, you've got west, you've got east. So as we said a moment ago, Ptolemy down here, and then the Seleucid Empire was larger than any of the others. So exactly as was told to Daniel by the angel. Then we go on, in verse 6, it says, And in the end of years... Literally, we understand that at the, after the lapse of several years. That's the, the idea. It's not at the end of time. It's simply after many years have passed, we're told, they, okay, now who are the they? Well, in the context here, we'll see that it's referring to Ptolemy's uh, granddaughter, effectively. So Ptolemy has his son, uh, Ptolemy II. Her, her, his daughter is this lady called Bernice. And so this is the they that's been referred to. Seleucus has two offspring, uh, Antiochus I and then Antiochus II. And so this is the they. So they shall join together. It says, for the king's daughter of the south shall come to the king of the north. King's daughter of the south, this side, shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement. I'll explain that in a second. All right, and again, just to, to clarify, as we said a moment ago, south is always in relation to Israel. So the king of the south is going to come to the king of the north because of the direction of where they are in regard to Israel. Again, to make an agreement. And what happened is, in around 250 BC, there was a political marriage arranged between the king of the north, Antiochus II, and Benice, who was obviously Ptolemy II, Philadelphus, is the king of the south's daughter. And we're told that she shall not retain the power of the arm, neither shall she stand, neither shall he stand. So they're speaking both of them. So she's in trouble, is implying. And then so is also Antiochus. Both of them are going to be in trouble. We'll see why. Uh, but she shall be given up, and they that brought her, and he that begat her, and he that strengthened her in these times. Now, in order for this marriage to take place, Antiochus had to divorce his own wife, Laodicea. Well, she wasn't particularly happy about that, you can probably appreciate. Um, and so she then sets out uh, to kind of cause a real problem, and she ends up murdering both of them. She poisons them. Uh, so both Bernice and Antiochus uh, ends up, uh, end up being murdered, and then she places her own son, Seleucus II, on the throne. Okay, so all political intrigue and all these kind of things going on. And then we're told, he, the last line here, he the begetter and he that strengthened her in these times. So she's kind of abandoned. Bernice is the one that's kind of the focus here. And she's abandoned and she, she ends up marrying, but then getting murdered. And then we come back to the he, which is Ptolemy II. And the reason that's important is because the next verse goes on and says, but out, uh, sorry, but out of a branch of her roots, which is Bernice, shall one stand up in his estate. All right, so just to be clear, the her is Bernice, and then his is Ptolemy. So speaking of a branch or an offspring from this family line, somebody's going to stand up in her estate, sorry, his estate, which shall come with an army, and they shall enter into the fortress of the king of the north, and shall deal against them, and shall prevail. 
They should also carry captives into Egypt, their gods, with their princes, with their precious vessels of silver and gold, and he shall continue more years than the king of the north. A lot of details in this. So the one that comes out of this estate, out of her roots, uh, is actually going to be Ptolemy the third. Uh, Eugrates is the, the individual in question. And then we're told that he historically then led an army against the north, against Seleucid the second, and was victorious, and so on. And we're told a few details at the bottom here. That he shall carry captives into Egypt, which he did. So he brought captives back after this battle, but notice specifically the details of what else they carried. We're told, carried their gods with their princes and with their precious vessels of silver and gold. Now, the spoils that Eurogrates took back to Egypt included 2,500 idols, gods, effectively. Not real gods, of course, because if somebody can pick up your god and carry it away captive, it's not a particularly good god. You would agree. 4,000 talents of gold and 40,000 talents of silver. That's just historically what we know. Again, exactly what the angel said to Daniel hundreds of years now before these events happened with incredible precision and detail. And the last thing, and he shall continue for more years than the king of the north. Well, Ptolemy III reigned for 24 years, surpassing that of his rival, Seleucid. So Ptolemy over here, he reigns for longer than Seleucid did over this side. We go on to verse 9. So the king of the south shall come into his kingdom and shall return into his own land. So with Eurates back in Egypt, Seleucid, the king of the north, leads an ill-fated attempt to attack the Egyptian uh, kingdom, effectively, under Eugrates, the king of the south, but he gets defeated. And so as a result of that, Antiochus, with only a remnant, uh, sorry, uh, he returns with only a remnant of his army. But he, okay, now that's the he in question here is Seleucus, okay, so the, the king of the north, but his sons, and we'll see those in a second, should work, we go. There we are. So those are the two sons in question. So, but with his sons shall be stirred up and shall assemble a multitude of great forces. And one of his sons, that's going to be Antiochus the third, shall certainly come and overflow and pass through Judea. Okay, that's the idea. So he's going to pass through Judea and then shall he return to Syria. So this is the the battle that's going to take place. So he's going to go passing through on the way down to Egypt. Doesn't particularly do very well out of this. Ends up coming back after the battle. Uh, and again, we're told, and shall be stirred up even to his fortress. I'll explain some of these things in a moment. Uh, and the king of the south, that's Ptolemy. In this case now, it's the next Ptolemy that sits on the throne. This is Philobator. Uh, shall be moved with cholera. Shall come forth to fight with him even with the king of the north. Again, that's Antiochus III. And he shall set forth a great multitude, but the multitude shall be given into his, that's Ptolemy the false, uh, hand. And when he has taken away the multitude, his heart shall be lifted up. Come back to this detail in a second. And he shall cast down many ten thousands and shall not be strengthened by it. Let me try and explain all the things we've just read there. Okay, so firstly, Seleucus' sons were, as we just saw, Seleucid III, who was murdered during a campaign in Asia Minor in the Turkey area. And then Antiochus III, also known as Antiochus the Great, who reigned till about 187 BC. Antiochus III recovered much of the territory that had been conquered by Eugrates and resumed war against the Ptolemaic dynasty down in Egypt. 
Antiochus also passed through Judea, because it was en route, attacking much of what had been held by Egypt. In about 221 BC, a multitude, it's a large army, was assembled by Ptolemy, who was Euphrates' son, and his army marched through Judea and was met in Lebanon by Antiochus. And that led, uh, in the spring of 219, to the Battle of Raphia. Now we're going to come back to that, I'll just mention that briefly later as well, this kind of important battle that took place there. It's about 20 miles um, south of modern-day Gaza. Okay, so Ptolemy down in Egypt, the fourth, led about 70,000 men against Antiochus' 60,000. Antiochus was defeated. So again, he comes down, he's defeated, he goes back. And he sustained great losses. Antiochus was forced to sign a peace treaty with Ptolemy. Ptolemy then embarked on a victory tour of the area. And interestingly, he stops off at Jerusalem. This is why all these things start to become very interesting. Uh, He's about to enter... Apparently, the Holy of Holies in the temple, ignoring the warning of the high priest, when he was apparently suddenly struck with paralysis and was unable to enter. Now, this is quite interesting because with what's coming, it would seem that God would not allow him to do this because there was a time coming when somebody else would do that in God's timing, and it would become a model of what is still yet to come. So God was protecting the holy place, wouldn't allow this individual, Ptolemy uh, the fourth, to go in and desecrate or do whatever what he was intending on doing. So after defeating Antiochus' multitude, so after Ptolemy has defeated this multitude up here, and the whole Jerusalem temple is done, he returns home to convalesce. But we're told that he was lifted up in his heart against the, the God of the Jews. Uh, he, com- um, he comforted himself by launching a wave of persecution against the Jews that were down in Egypt. Now, while all that was going on, Antiochus, rather than being discouraged that he's just lost his battle and had to go back home again, sets about getting ready for a rematch, rebuilding his army. Verse 13 carries on. For the king of the north, again, that's... Antiochus III shall return and shall set forth a multitude greater than the former. Okay, so this is more than the last army. And it shall certainly come after certain years with a great army and with much riches. And in those times there shall many, and this one way, the many will include early Rome. Rome was starting to come to the fore as well at this point. Shall stand up against the king of the south. Again, Ptolemy down in Egypt. And also the children. That was the implication of it. Uh, also, the robbers of thy people. Okay, that was the Egyptians under Ptolemy who just desecrated or tried to desecrate the temple and um, um, persecuted the Jews down in Egypt. Also, uh, sorry, the children of the robbers of thy people and shall exalt themselves to establish the vision, but they shall fall. So the king of the north, Antiochus again, shall come and cast up a mound and take most uh, the most fenced cities and the arms of the south shall not withstand, neither his chosen people, neither shall there be any strength to withstand. But he, Antiochus again, that cometh against him, you haven't got the historical context, confusing as to who's the he's and the hymns, he shall do according to his own will, and none shall stand before him, and he shall stand in the glorious land, reference to Israel, by which his hand shall be consumed due to the ravages of war. That's uh, the implication here. So, 12 years after that previous battle, the Battle of Raphia I mentioned, Antiochus the Great sets out with an even larger army. This is just history, again, in fulfillment of everything the angel said. Sets out with another army to come down against 
uh, Ptolemy here. But by now, Ptolemy has died, and his youngest son, Ptolemy V Epiphanes, becomes king. And among Antiochus' army were some Jewish mercenaries at that point. And we also see the first sight of Rome also, who wanted a piece of the Egyptian spoils. So he comes with others besides just himself, this large army. Because it's fresh in the robbers of Daniel's people. Technically, the Hebrew refers to the children of the robbers. And they were the Egyptian forces under Ptolemy, who have again seen what Ptolemy IV had done, had accomplished, uh, uh, sorry, had accomplished, was confident that they could stop Antiochus again. So they, they, they've already stopped Antiochus once, so they're confident now that they can stop this, this new onslaught that's coming. And as a result of this confidence, one of Ptolemy's allies, named Scopus, retook Judea. Okay, so this had been taken, um, but one of his um, allies, sorry, uh, one of Ptolemy's allies, Scopus, retook Judah. Ptolemy only held Judah, though, for a very short time. Because in 198 BC, Scopus was driven back and defeated by about 100,000 now, a bigger army of the Antiochus troops at Sidon. Uh, thus, none were able to withstand, withstand the strength of Antiochus. As a result of all this changing of hands, Judea was reduced to poverty as the ravages of war took place, exactly as had been prophesied. Okay, we've gone to verse 17. And also, uh, he shall also set his face to enter with the strength of his whole kingdom and upright ones with him. Thus he shall do, and he shall uh, give him the daughter of women, corrupting her, but shall, uh, she shall not stand on his side, neither be for him. Now, we get real political intrigue going on at this point. So rather than just destroying Egypt and wanting to be seen to be doing the right thing again because of the threat of Rome and everything else that was rising, Antiochus in the north here, with this next attempt as he's coming down, decides to make an agreement with this new king, Ptolemy IV uh, V uh, of Egypt, by giving him his own beautiful daughter as wife. That's the reference there. Uh, and he shall give him the daughter of women, and he's just corrupting her. The idea was he wanted her to be like a spy in the camp. The only problem was, at this point, Ptolemy was just 10 years old. He was only a really young kid, but because his father has passed off the scene, he becomes the next ruler and so on. But... This whole kind of giving of daughters, I'm sure you're familiar, and this was a way of trying to get some sort of uh, um, union between various rivaling realms and so on. It didn't work uh, because he intends for his daughter to become a spy, but she actually ends up falling in love with Ptolemy. Although he was young, I don't know how old she was, presuming she was quite young at the time as well, but they end up falling in love. And so she ends up siding with the Ptolemy king down here, Ptolemy V. So he gives his daughter, in this alliance, hoping to have a spy in the camp to tell you what's going on, it all backfires, doesn't work out. <clears throat> now, after his success in Egypt, Antiochus III turned his attention elsewhere. So we'll read in verse 18, After this shall he turn his face unto the isles. Historically, we know that's true. And shall take many, but a prince for his own behalf shall cause the reproach offered by him to cease. Without his own reproach, he shall cause it to turn upon him. So initially he was successful, uh, but in Asia, minus Turkey today, he encountered this new kid on the block named Rome, who again decided to rise to power and authority. Rome, under Manius Archelius uh, Glabrio, forced Antiochus back towards Syria, thus causing the reproach offered by him to cease. That's what that wording implies. Rome then pursued Antiochus and turned the tables on him, putting him under tribute to them, 
So rather than building his empire, he starts to move against Rome and so on, and then he's forced back, and they put him under tribute. And so he has to start paying taxes to them. Verse 19. Then shall he turn his faith toward the fault of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and not be found. So he was desperately in need of raising some funds, some quick cash. But he ends up dying whilst attempting to rob a temple in his own land at uh, Elimaeus in Persia in 187 BC. So that goes disastrously wrong for him. We then go on to our next king of the north, uh, Seleucus IV, Philopater. And so that's the one that succeeds him. Um, and we're told in verse 20, then he should, then shall stand up in his estate a raiser of taxes. So Antiochus III dies, and in his estate, his family, next one on the line is Seleucus uh, the fourth Philopater, and as it says, a raise of taxes. This is in the glory of the kingdoms, but within a few days he shall be destroyed, neither in anger nor in battle. So, again, because he inherited this debt, he raised his taxes, didn't go down too well with the people. So unpopular, in fact, was it that he was then assassinated by his minister, Helodorus. Now, again, it's exactly what the angel says to Daniel. He died neither in anger nor in battle, Okay, but as a result of a political issue. Now, just as an interesting aside at this point, Second Maccabees, which is one of the books in the Apocrypha, it's not part of the Bible, but there's some useful historical content in there. It records that he entered the temple in Jerusalem in order to take his treasures, again, no doubt under the order of Zeuchus, uh, but was turned back by three forms of God. Now, I have no idea what that means, but that's what's recorded. It's interesting. Once again, an attempt is made to go into the temple and to desecrate it effectively, to take things out of it, and God prevents it. Interesting. Okay, and we're told that in his estate they shall stand up a vile person to whom they shall not give honor of the kingdom, but he shall come, uh, come in peaceably and obtain the kingdom by flattery. So now we come, come towards the end now, this bit, of Antiochus IV, Antiochus Epiphanes. This is the character historically we are very interested in because he's a forerunner of Antichrist, the one who is coming to this world, who will become a political uh, and religious leader effectively on earth. Now, we've already seen Antiochus introduced back in chapter 8 prophetically. We're told a little bit about it, what his career was going to be like. Said already he's a type or a model of Antichrist who's to come. Interestingly, the Greek name for Antiochus Epiphanes uh, is actually translated as the shining one. Or Nikesh is the Hebrew. It's the same word used in Genesis of the serpent, which is interesting because that's exactly what he is. He's he's like of the serpent, the devil, uh, like Antichrist will be. So he was uh, Antiochus Epiphanes was this model in advance. Bear in mind these are all historical things that took place. So Seleucid um, the fourth was assassinated. His eldest son uh, Demetrius should have succeeded him, but Demetrius was now being held captive in Rome. Remember, Rome has now put them under tribute and so on. Well, they'd kept some of the royal family there. It was kind of like a, a bargaining chip. But they'd recently released Antiochus. Antiochus had been held in Rome. But for some reason, they let him go. And then they took his elder brother, who was the rightful king, the, the heir to the throne, they take him to Rome instead, which means Antiochus is now free. And he's now his older brother, who should be king, is now held in prison in Rome. According to Dake's Bible commentary, I'll just read this to you. Antiochus Epiphanes was on his way back from Rome when his father, Seleucid IV, died. 
Polodorus, who poisoned the king, had already declared himself king, as had several others. But Antiochus came home peaceably, not in war, and using flattery obtained the kingdom. He flattered Eumenes, the king of Pergamos, and Athelus, his brother, younger brother. He got their assistance. He flattered the Romans and sent ambassadors to court their favor, paying them tribute, which was in arrears. So this tax is built up, so he pays that off. And he flattered the Syrians. He gained their favor and took the throne with their backing. So just as Daniel said, or the angel said to Daniel what happened, Antiochus becomes king using flatteries. It's interesting because it's a model of what Antichrist will do. Antichrist is going to be such an incredible person, a very charismatic person. People are going to want him, think he's a lovely person. He's going to create all sorts of you know, warm, fuzzy feelings inside him. People are going to think, oh, he's a really good leader. It's just like Antiochus did. He's going to obtain the kingdom using flatteries. So although he wasn't the rightful heir, he takes the kingdom anyway. Verse 22, and with the arms of a flood shall they be overflown from before him, and he shall be broken, yea, also the prince of the covenant. The they, that's referred to in this verse, are the ones who were overthrown by Antiochus with the help of his supporters. However, it wasn't only Antiochus' rivals overthrown, but also the high priest down in Jerusalem, this individual by the name of Ananias. Calling again to Maccabees, he'd been conspiring with the Spartans, in his place, Antiochus agreed to let Ananias' brother, Jason, assume the role of high priest. Jason had agreed to pay Antiochus a large sum of money to get the job. Just imagine that, people in professional religious roles for money, I imagine. Uh, verse 23, and after the league made with him, he shall work deceitfully, for he shall come up and shall become strong with the small people. Interestingly, Jason didn't hold the office of high priest for very long. A Benjamite, and you'll be familiar from the Torah, that the Benjamites should never become priests. It wasn't their calling, it was for the Levites. But nevertheless, this Benjamite by the name of uh, Menelaus, who was on his way to pay Antiochus money from Jason, used Jason's money to bribe Antiochus to give him the title instead. So he just fancied, you know, I think quite fancy becoming a, becoming a priest. It sounds like a fun thing to do. So that's what he does. And so with just a small group of supporters, Antiochus IV, uh, Epiphanes, returns from Rome, becomes king in the place of his father. <clears throat> and then we get to verse 24. And he shall enter peaceably even upon the fattest places of the province, and he shall do uh, that which his fathers have not done, nor his father's fathers. He shall scatter among them the prey and spoil and riches. Yea, he shall forecast his devices against the strongholds even for a time. What does that mean? Well, Antiochus subdued, subdued Lebanon, Phoenicia, and Judea, and appointed rulers whom he paid with the spoils of the things that he won from the battles he won, effectively bribing them so that he would ensure their continued loyalty to him. All right, we then get to this war, knowing this war with Ptolemy, uh, the fourth down in Egypt, was likely he tried to plan against an Egyptian attack or invasion by strengthening his own borders while at the same time preparing to attack Egypt. So he's getting ready for an attack, but at the same time also getting ready to launch an offensive. Verse 25, and he shall stir up uh, his power and his courage against the king of the south, and with a great army, and the king of the south shall be stirred up to battle with a gr very great and mighty army, but he shall not stand, for they shall forecast devices against him. Yea, they that feed 
of the portion of his meat shall destroy him and his army shall overflow and many shall fall down slain. What does that mean? Well, eventually Antiochus does then march down to Egypt with a large army, capturing Ptolemy IV, whom he then lets stay on the throne as a vassal king. In other words, he could stay as a king, but he would now be under the rule of Antiochus Epiphanes. Firstly, so as not to alarm Rome, who was keeping a watchful eye on things that were going on, but also because um, uh, Philometa was actually Antiochus's cousin from this previous relationship. Um, so this Ptolemy sitting on the throne was actually his cousin from that previous relationship. Remember, his, his father had sent his daughter down there and, and so on. So one of the reasons that Ptolemy did not stand, as we're told, uh, was because Antiochus had bribed some of Ptolemy's key men to turn against him and support Antiochus's cause instead. And so that statement about those that eat meat, again, it was those that had literally eaten meat with Ptolemy. They were the ones responsible for destroying him and defeating his army, leading to this victory, if you like, by Antiochus Epiphanes. Verse 27, And both these kings' hearts shall be to do mischief, and they shall speak lies at one table. Imagine people sitting around a table and uh, not speaking truth to each other. So it's a little bit like politics today, isn't it? Uh, but it shall not be prosper. It shall not prosper, for yet the end shall be at the time appointed. So although Antiochus had allowed Ptolemy to continue as king of Egypt, those in Alexandria chose uh, Ptolemy Philometor's younger brother to be king instead. Uh, and knowing, again, that um, uh, Ptolemy Philometus' own people have rejected him. Antiochus steps in. He seizes this as an opportunity to befriend his cousin for his own ends. Now, down in Egypt, Philometus was happy to play along with this pseudo-friendship while at the same time plotting how he could throw off the yoke of Antiochus. So the people in Egypt want his, his uh, son to take the throne but there's a kind of this now a, a pseudo-relationship starting to develop between this king down here and Antiochus Epiphanes. Verse 28, Then shall he return into his own land with great riches, and his heart shall be against the holy covenant, and he shall do exploits and return to his own land. A really key verse in the whole scheme of this, because as he's going back, he of course goes through Israel. Okay, So he returns to Syria, far richer than when he left but on the way back, he comes through Israel because there had been a false report that he died. And that had been met in Israel with great celebrations because they didn't like this individual at all. And as a result of this, as far as Antiochus was concerned, that was a very bad thing and worthy of punishment. So he stops off on the way back. And verse 29 says, And at the time appointed, he shall return and come toward the south, but it shall not be as the former or the latter, for the ships of Shittim shall come against him, and, and therefore shall be grieved and return and have indignation against the holy covenant. So shall he do, so shall uh, so he shall even return and have intelligence with them that forsake the holy covenant. Okay, so it's a short time later. Antiochus once again invaded Egypt, but it was not nearly so successful a campaign as his first attempt against okay, the former or his second invasion, okay, which was uh, where it led to him conquering Egypt, the last of the latter, uh, except Alexander, that was, only, that was the only part he didn't conquer, uh, when he made Ptolemy uh, his vassal king instead. 
So whilst this was all taking place, Antiochus's fleet had captured Cyprus, but that had awakened the concerns of Rome shortly after Antiochus was met near Alexander in Egypt by the Roman consul Gaius Populus Leonis, who told him that he must immediately withdraw from both Cyprus and Egypt. So Rome's starting to come into the picture here. Antiochus replied, didn't he really like a time to think about it? And probably one of the greatest moves of history. Gaius consents to his wish. He draws a big circle around him on the ground and says, okay, you can take as long as you want to take, make your decision, but you've got to make your decision before you leave that circle. And so it kind of really puts him on the spot. He has to decide that he's going to consent to Rome, otherwise he's going to be killed. In other words, either withdraw or you're going to be at war with Rome. Now, having been publicly humiliated, Antiochus wanted to vent his anger and frustration. And what better place to do it than, of course, the people that he already despised, the Jews. So on top of this, he'd been sent word that Jason, the ex-high priest who he de- deceived, had gathered an army and marched against Jerusalem to depose Menelaus, the Benjamite, who'd kind of put himself forward as high priest. So the fact that Menelaus, the then high priest, was a Benjamite, as I said already, was a direct violation of the Holy Covenant, which was what we saw in the text a moment ago, and that God had obviously given that rule to Moses, where the Levites were the only ones permitted to be the priests. So verse 31 goes on, And arms shall stand on his part, and they shall uh, pollute the sanctuary of strength, and shall take away the daily sacrifice. And they shall place the abomination that makes desolate. This is what Jesus quotes in Matthew 24. And as such as do wickedly against the covenant shall he corrupt by flatteries. Same modus operandi again. But the people that do know their God shall be strong. So in his rage, Antiochus takes Jerusalem by storm, kills about 40,000 Jews and selling many others into slavery. And in addition, he then boiled swine's flesh and sprinkled the broth in the temple and on the altar. He broke into the Holy of Holies. He took away the golden vessels and the other sacred treasuries. Remember, two previous kings had tried to do this and weren't able to. God had stopped them. This time it happens. Why? Because it's a model in advance of what is going to happen. Antichrist is going to basically do the same as this. He's going to allow the Jews to start sacrificing, but he's going to get to the point that he's going to say, enough. Halfway through the seven-year period that is yet to come for us, Antichrist is going to reenact all of this stuff. And this is why this is so interesting. As a result of this, uh, Antiochus Epiphanes restores Menelaus to office and made Philip this Phrygian governor of Judah. So they kind of work out some sort of uh, agreement through this. But he also prohibited Jewish worship and consecrated the Jewish temple to Jupiter Olympus. The gods that were worshipped by the Romans as well. Uh, and placed a statue of Jupiter in the Holy of Holies. Now this again is interesting because that's what Antichrist will do. Antichrist will put in the temple in Jerusalem, which will be rebuilt. Keep watching the news because any day now you're going to find there will be a news flash that it's been agreed that the Jews can rebuild a temple in Jerusalem. It's coming up. could be this week. Things are going on. It could be a month. It could be a year. It could be five years from now. But it will happen. They will grant permission for the Jews to rebuild their temple. Okay, and in, in that temple, this person who's going to come onto the world scene, who's going to seem like a wonderful character, he's the one that is going to confirm an agreement with Israel and the surrounding nations, and he's going to have his own image put in the temple, just as Antiochus Epiphanes did here. And after taking away the Jewish sacrifices in the temple, Antiochus then offered a swine, a pig, obviously offensive to the Jews, 
Uh, they weren't 3D wasn't kosher. Offered it upon the altar and made the temple desolate of divine worship. Verse 32 carries on. Uh, and as such as do wickedly against the covenant shall he corrupt by flatteries, but the people that know their God shall be strong and do exploits. And they that understand among the people shall instruct many, yet they shall fall by the sword and by flame and by captivity and by spoil many days. Now when they shall fall, they shall be holpen with a little help, but many shall cleave to them with flatteries. So many Hellenistic, that's the Greek-influenced Jews, were seduced by Antiochus and even went as far as worshipping the image that he set up. And this atrocity led to the Maccabean Revolt, which lasted for three and a half years. Now, we went through the details of that back in Daniel 8, uh, verse 14, the notes and the slides, everything on the web, so I'm not going to go through that again now. But it led to the Maccabean Revolt, which ultimately led to the festival, the Feast of Hanukkah, that the Jews celebrate every year because of this, because of the, all the, the details that surround it. <clears throat> verse 35, And some of them of understanding shall fall, uh, to try them and to purge them and to make them white even to the time of the end because it is yet for a time appointed. Now up until this point we've been reviewing what is for us fulfilled prophecy. For Daniel it was all yet future, hundreds of years in the future, these things that this angel is revealing to him. But we look back now with the benefit of history on our side and we can see all of those things took place just as it was revealed. I know it's a little bit confusing when you look at it but when you join it with the history all of those prophecies came true. But now we get this interesting verse that tells us that it's yet for a time appointed. Now, of course, it was, in Daniel's perspective, still a time appointed. But the implication is that there are still yet to come. Again, let's not lose sight of the fact that this happened hundreds of years after Daniel was told about it. But again, we get this first hint now of a, a double fulfillment. What do I mean by that? Well, commentators and scholars sometimes use this expression to talk about the law of double reference. Very simply, is this. The, the law observes the fact that often a passage or a block of scripture is speaking of two persons or two different events that are separated by a long period of time. Now, there's a lot of examples in the New Testament. The disciples quote a particular scripture that happened and then speak about it happening again. In Matthew, uh, we have the quote about, out of Egypt I called my son. Now, in the context, he's speaking of the children of Israel that came out of Egypt. But Matthew uses it in regard to Jesus, who also went down to Egypt and came out. So the same passage can have a local application and a future application. And that seems to be what we're now starting to see because of the context. So in the following verses, we now begin to see the one whom Antiochus Epiphanes is a type, i.e. Antichrist, come to the fore. Some of the following details are applicable to Antiochus. The scope of this goes far beyond that, and we start to see these overtones of what we have in Daniel's 70th week. That's that period of seven years that is yet to come. J. Vernon McGee just says this, At this point, history ends and prophecy begins. For us, for Daniel, it was all prophecy. But for us, we've looked at the historical portion. The last few verses is where we now get the prophetic things, which are really interesting for where we are in the time we are on earth right now. So the text passes from a vile person to a vicious character, moving over a bridge of unmeasured time. Antiochus Epiphanes was certainly a contemptible person, but he could not measure up to the king described in verses 36 to 39. So let's have a quick look as we draw to a close. And the king shall do according to his will and shall exalt himself and shall magnify himself above every god. Interesting statement, isn't it? And shall speak marvellous things against the God of gods. 
and shall prosper till the indignation be accomplished. God is going to give a, a limited time. For that is determined shall be done. God has already foreordained and foretold that this is what's going to happen. Although Antichrist is going to come to the floor, it's all part of God's plan. Revelation 13, Daniel 7, Daniel, uh, Daniel 7, verse 8, and verse 24 and 25. Again, if you want to review for some of those details. Now, it's from this verse that we get the title of the willful king as one of the titles for Antichrist. Again, we see in Revelation 13 that Antichrist has this mouth full of blasphemies and he's going to exalt himself above everything that's called God. Okay, So that includes the God of the Christians and the Jews, as well as Allah and Buddha and Mother Earth and whatever else you can think of that people worship and call God. Antichrist will exalt himself and want to be worshipped above everything. There will become one world religion. Now, in order for Antichrist to get away with this, all the world's religions need to be molded into one prior to this time. So there need to be some events that shake the status quo. And we've seen a bunch of them in our recent history. So right before our eyes, we're witnessing the beginning of this process with the Roman Catholic Church that's joining hands now with Mormons and with Muslims and with Buddhists. And amazingly, Protestants and evangelical churches are joining in too. The desire for unity is outweighing the concern for biblical truth. Let's just work together. Let's all be happy. You can call God whatever you want to call God. Let's just all worship God. That's the idea that's being propagated. And it's preparation for what's coming. Verse 37, Neither shall he regard the God of his fathers, nor the desire of women, nor regard any God, for he shall magnify himself above all. Interesting statement here that we're told that he not regard the desire of women. Well, what is it that women in Daniel's time desired? They desired, the Jewish women desired to be the one to give birth to the Messiah. So commentators generally see this as being a reference to the fact that he will not have any regard for Jesus Christ whatsoever. The desire of women, the, the, the Messiah. Right from Genesis 3, it was prophesied that the Savior will be the, uh, the, will be the seed of the woman. And it was obviously the highest honor and the greatest desire of Jewish women that they would be the one to carry to give birth to the Messiah. Of course, that honor fell to Mary. But in his estate shall he honor the God of forces and a God whom his fathers knew not. Shall he honor with gold and silver and with precious stones and pleasant things. So the God of forces can also be translated the God of fortresses. So with the implication being that the one who is holding the fort or the kingdom. All right? and Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 4.4 that it's the God who is holding the fault of this earth for now, is Satan. So this seems to be an implication to say that the one he's going to honor is the one that is holding fault on earth, i.e. Satan. Thus shall he do with the most, uh, most strongholds with a strange God, whom he shall acknowledge and increase with glory, and he shall cause them to rule over many and shall divide the land for gain. Another couple of interesting little statements there, because Satan is going to establish this man, this one that's coming, Again, Antiochus was just a, a dress rehearsal. Real events, but a dress rehearsal of what's coming. The Satan's going to use Antichrist to rule over the nations of this world. In return, Antichrist is going to cause all the people to acknowledge and worship the dragon who gave power to the beast. So this one world church, this one world religion that's coming is going to be sold by flatteries, just as Antiochus did. And people are going to get duped and deceived into it. And they're going to realize ultimately that the one they're worshiping is not God in heaven but it's the devil of hell. Antichrist's kingdom is going to be divided into ten regions. That's again, we're told, uh, Revelation and elsewhere, 
uh, and these, or, or it could be ten kings. However, it's going to work. Either ten regions, ten kings, but ten some things are going to have authority over the earth. And there's also going to be a dividing up of the land, this implies as well, and we would see that to be the dividing up of Israel for financial gain. Well, we've seen it through history. That's already happened. The British have been very much a part of that, uh, dividing up the land, selling parts off, and so on. So last few verses. And at that time, of the, uh, sorry, at the time of the end, shall the king of the south, and this is interesting because in the context, Antiochus was, of course, the king of the north. The king of the south shall push against him, and the king of the north shall come against him. So straight away now, we've got that confirmation that we're looking at more than just Antiochus. Because Antiochus was the king of the north, but we've got somebody else referred to now as the king of the north coming against what seems to be Antichrist. But notice what we're told here. Come against him like a whirlwind, with chariots, with horsemen, with many ships, and he shall enter into uh, the countries, and shall overflow and overpass. And he shall enter also enter... To enter also into the glorious land, and many countries shall be overthrown, but these shall escape out of his hand, even Edom and Moab, and the chief of the children of Ammon. Now, that's typically the area we think of today as Jordan. What it's telling us is that those areas will not come under the sway of Antichrist, for whatever reasons. And verse 42 says, And he shall stretch forth his hand also upon the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. But he shall have power over the treasures of gold. He's going to be in charge of the world's economy and of silver and over all of the precious things of Egypt. And the Libyans and the Ethiopians shall be at his steps. They'll be subservient to him. But tidings out of the east and out of the north shall trouble him. Therefore, he shall go forth with great fury to destroy and utterly to make away many. Now, again, in the light of future, we'll be able to look back on this and see exactly how these things are played out. But on this side of the prophetic divide, as it were, while we're still looking into the future as we're reading these things, we can only speculate at some of these references. When we look back, we'll see how it detailed it was and how it was all fulfilled. And again, the references to the king of the north and king of the south, who is it referring to? We will find out. It may well be something further north than just Syria and Damascus and so on. It may be way north and closes the likes of Russia, which is due north of Israel. What is clear from this verse is that we are not talking about the Seleucid and the Ptolemaic dynasties anymore. Earlier in this chapter, the Seleucid Empire was referred to as the king of the north, as I said, and yet now Antichrist has picked up the mantle of Antiochus. He's being attacked from a king, presumably further north of Israel than Syria is. The scholars propose that the king of the south may be united Africa, with the king of the north being the Russians. Whoever they prove to be, they will march against Antichrist, passing through and trampling over the land of Israel, much like the early conflicts had done. We also find that tidings from the east will travel Antichrist. Uh, east of Israel, of course, is Asia, including China. So the scenario that seems to be painted is very interesting because we've got the north that's going to cause them trouble, we've got the south that's going to cause them trouble, and we've got the east that's going to cause them trouble. But we find Antichrist will subdue all of them. Now what is really interesting in that is that we're told in Daniel chapter 7.24 that Antichrist will subdue three of the ten kings. So this may well be that link that tells us which, one, which three of those ten kings, or ten areas geographically, that will come again, or originally will side with him and turn against him and he will then subdue them. Uh, maybe that's how it's going to play out. We'll wait and see. It's also interesting to note that modern-day Jordan, as I said, Edom, Moab, Ammon, is going to escape out of Antichrist's hands. And in Revelation 12, we're told 
that that will be the area that Israel will flee to when Antichrist starts persecuting them. And many commentators believe it will be Petra. I'm sure you're familiar with that scene. Of course, if you saw uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, it was on that. It's been in other films as well. But this is in Petra today, in modern-day Jordan. And it's a, a rock city. I'm sure you're very familiar with it. It's almost inaccessible other than simply on horseback, camel, whatever other simple means you take. It's not very easy to get to. And it seems to be the area that the Jews are going to flee to and stay and be protected by God for three and a half years whilst the last part of this seven-year period is playing itself out. Our last verse. You thought we'd get there, did you? We are. And he shall plant the tabernacles of his palace between the seas and the glorious holy mountain, yet he shall come to his end and none shall help him. So this is a statement that God really is in control. He's going to be allowed to do these things to fulfill God's purposes, but he's going to come to an end. And nobody is going to be able to support him and help him. Of course, the, he's going to set up camp in Israel between the Dead Sea and the Mediterranean Sea and so on. Speaking of Jerusalem. But he's going to be defeated at the appointed time and no one will be able to help him. Why? Because the one who comes to defeat him will be none other than the King of Kings. It will be the Messiah. It will be Jesus Christ who will return to deliver Israel from his clutches and from all that's going on. And Jesus then will overthrow this individual Antichrist and set up his kingdom. Wow. A lot in there. It's all in the notes. By all means, go through it again, read through it again. It is kind of a complicated chapter because there's so many historical references, but now we have the benefit of hindsight. We can see the amazing thing, as I said, 135 prophecies in just 34 verses there. That's what we've just gone through. You should... Uh, Get a pat on the back individually for that. Let's bow our hearts and thank the Lord. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that it is so detailed. We thank you that you do tell the future in advance. And Lord, even in the things we have seen this morning, there are things that are so applicable to our day. Things that are going on right now in the Middle East. Lord, there are movings behind the political scenes of which we don't get to see that are moving religions to break down walls and barriers and to agree to work together. We are seeing the world's financial markets in chaos and largely brought about because of the COVID pandemic. But Lord, cash is getting ready to cancel. The mark, a system is due to come in, Lord, that we'll, everybody will have to sign up to, to buy and sell. Oh Lord, we see the fingerprints. We see, Lord, the embryonic stages of this now taking place. And the last 18 months that we've gone through has been a stepping stone, Lord, a big stepping stone toward that end. So, Lord, we recognize that we are so close to the fulfillment of these things. Oh, Father, we pray that in all of this we won't fear, we won't be confused, we will lift up our eyes, we will look upon Jesus, that we will see him and we will be encouraged and strengthened and blessed, that we will grow in our love for him. For, Lord, the purpose of all of this isn't that we would have some degree in history, but that we would know Jesus better and that we would put our trust in him. So, Lord, do this work in our hearts, we pray now. In Jesus' name, amen.